This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast where sisters are doing it for themselves. Today we're talking about female buddy comedies in light of the release of Barb and Star. Go to Vista Del Mar by Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo. I'm Erica Spires and I have packed my finest culottes and bedazzled blouses. I'm Mark Lintonwire, philosophy mansplainer and bosom buddy. And I'm Brian Hurt. Pleased to learn in researching this podcast that female buddy pictures can be just as terrible as male ones. Way to go, ladies. <laughs> And our guest. Hi, I'm Micah Green, and I got kicked out of the talking club, so I'll see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Micah. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited. Micah Green is my buddy. Micah is one of my longest female friendships, and I am here to confirm the fact that it is difficult for a lot of females to have great female relationships. I think there is a natural inclination for females from a very early age to be pitted against each other or against the males around them to try to to be heard and seen. And so anyway, uh, Micah is one of my longest running friendships. And I'm proud to say we've never had a run in with anything that has caused a rift. Are we Agreed. talking middle school? How far back? Oh, not, not that, that, not not that, that hard. <laughs> That's how hard it is. <laughs> what has well, it been now like? It is. 12 years, probably. Oh, gosh, probably. I know what we're in 2020 now. At the most 14 years. Yeah. At yeah. the least 12 years. Math is hard. Math is hard. <laughs> I kind of forgot. I agree with you, Erica. And I definitely have found more as an adult putting aside that sort of competition that we're, is a little bit ingrained into us. It's easier to make friends. But I definitely feel that growing up, especially like your teen years and your college years, and especially being in theater, it's always a competition. So the female friendships could be, you know, just laced with that always and that sort of undercurrent of competition where both of you feel it. But I felt like with you, Erica, even though we were both actors in the same small acting town of Boston when we first kind of met, we weren't really competitive with each other. At least I didn't feel that at all. No, there's a little bit of an age gap, like not really now, but like oh, for when you're first starting out. <laughs> well, you know, when you're first starting out, Micah was still in college and I had started in the professional world already. So it was actually really cool to almost, I wasn't mentoring you, but there- No, you were though. I was able to introduce her to some people and and recommend her for projects and things like that. We also have, you know, different skill sets. So I think this is something that we'll, you know, talk about in the, in terms of films as well is like, what are the similarities like? Like within these buddy comedy duos and what are the differences? So we'll talk more about that. But I just want to, as we go on, our main source for this particular podcast is Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. From that, I thought, well, why don't we look actually, now that it's Women's History Month, let's not just look at this one. Let's look at female buddy comedies. And it's ended up being kind of an interesting venture because we have to think about what actually is considered a female buddy comedy. What are we including in that? It's also hard to find them. Did you all find this as well? Brian, Mark, any thoughts? I think it's easy to drift into things that maybe don't qualify. Yeah. And that's where I was struggling a little bit with things that are true ensemble pieces. I was thinking of Ocean's, what was it, 8? Which was nominally an Ocean's 11 remake or whatever reinvention, but it felt more like an ensemble than a true buddy comedy. Or mm -hmm. I was 
getting ready for this and the movie nine to five came up and that's three women. And I really think a buddy comedy has at its center two core characters. And as we've talked about also getting ready, there are some TV shows that are really central to this relationship. But we were talking about movies. It was definitely easier looking at the last decade than prior to that. So that's something that there's yes. a lot more to draw from. And we were talking about movies with and by Asian Americans. We were quickly going back to the Joy Luck Club from decades ago as our second example. So that was pretty tragic. And it was good that we have some fresher material to look at. I was able to look at a couple of things that convinced me that the action is happening in dramedies that, I mean, I've seen Bridesmaids and things before, but Sisters and sitting through all of Sisters, which is a with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And I felt like, oh, I should see that. I haven't seen anything with them together on film, but I feel like I got just nothing out of that <laughs> for this conversation because it was goofy, but it wasn't like brilliantly goofy like Barb and Star was. It fit a lot of Saturday Night Live people in one party. That was a thing it accomplished. But I felt like if I'm just going to see more movies like this, like what is even the point? What am I actually learning about friendship or something? Whereas something like Booksmart or getting into TV shows, these things that are tracking people over time further, Broad City, Grace and Frankie, absolutely fabulous. These things that can investigate the relationship more. I think maybe that it does point out some difference between sort of how men and women approach friendship, or at least what the tropes about those are. Yeah, for sure. And getting into the representation. Yes, representation is an issue in general in buddy comedies. And in fact, most of the things that you will find throughout time are buddy cop comedies. And most of those, of course, are are the classic male duos. We've started to get some female buddy cop comedies as well. But I think you're right. When you think of older comedy duos with females, one of the things that comes up is, is Thelma and Louise, which also dramedy, right? And then I discovered there's an actual article because I was having trouble finding Black representation in buddy comedies. There's an actual article all about how Black females do not get buddy comedy duos. They mentioned BAPs as one. But even that, they said, quite didn't fit the mold because Halle Berry was a big star, but the other lady whose name I don't have on the tip of my tongue right now wasn't a big star. Even there, it's just like to have two big stars who are friends in a comedy who are both Black is just not a thing that really exists. We do have some examples where there's one black character with a white character. And I think even though Bridesmaids is a pretty good example, because even though it is a, you know, it's a whole ensemble of women, it does kind of center around the friendship between Maya Rudolph and Kristen Wiig. So I think that can still kind of work there. But Mark, like you said, with TV shows, definitely there's some interesting representation going on there with like Grace and Frankie. We have two older females. We have Pen15, which was the one that came up with an Asian character, right? That was one of the main duos. And Dead to Me, dealing with two women who are almost pre-menopausal women. Of a certain age is what you're looking for there. Yeah, women of a certain age. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Micah, did you have original? Did you like the movie? Oh, or good question. So honestly, I'm wrestling with it a little bit. And I don't know why that is. I thoroughly enjoyed it from a, a comedic standpoint. And I think my biggest takeaway 
is that I really enjoyed, even though they're these Barb and Star are these, at first it seemed like these two SNL characters given a movie. But then you watched as the friendship is really examined throughout the film. And even though it is comically absurd and it's always one-upping itself, I thought that their relationship was the rock that that was built upon. And it was so interesting to see that I kind of expected the trope of the man to come between them. And it did a little bit, but only in the sense that there was a betrayal of the friendship. It wasn't the typical jealousy of two women fighting for one man. So I really, really liked that. I liked that they weren't jealous of each other and who was going to win by landing the man and riding off into the sunset. I I liked that the problem was that there was a betrayal of their trust. And that was a very real nugget that further grounded their relationship. So I feel like that was really awesome to see and and very progressive in the setting of such an absurd movie (laughs) where I was like, are you kidding? (laughs) Well, just to set up this movie, which for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's Barb and Star go to the Vista Del Mar. Do you want to give us a spoiler ridden moment? No, my the spoiler free review is go see the damn movie. It's a goofball movie that somehow has more plot than you think it will, but also less plot. And I'm really glad, Erica, that you said just watch it without my telling you much more about it. It's not just dumb and dumber with women. In fact, they're not even that dumb. They're just absurd in a lot of different ways. And I will say I really, really enjoyed it way more than I thought I would uh, based on just some spoiler free reviews that I had seen. And uh, so it's the the two buddies are Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo, which she co-wrote Bridesmaids with Kristen Wiig. And she had a small but really funny role in that movie. She says possibly the funniest line in Bridesmaids. Did she register at all when you saw that originally? No, remind me. She's the nervous passenger on the plane to Las Vegas who Kristen Wiig oh, sits next to. And Kristen yeah. Wiig's character is really nervous about flying. And Annie Momolo's character sitting next to her on the plane and said, I had a bad dream last night that this plane was going down. And then she says, you were in it. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I thought that was just the funniest bit of writing and delivered so well. And it's great to see her in this lead role or this co-lead role that was just a tremendous movie. And in some ways, her arc is a little bit more interesting than Kristen Wiig's because it is more about discovery and realization individually rather than in her position to a man. All right. So do you want to give us a 30 second spoiler plot and anybody who doesn't want to be spoiled, just fast forward. Here's the eight word summary. Barb and star. No, um, <laughs> go to the Vista. It's fine. Uh, no, it's, I'm, I'm not going to give any more than that, but someone else is welcome to and ruin the experience for our listeners. Go I think we it. could talk about the characters a little before we even get into plot because the plot is not, <laughs> even that important. My bad idea for framing this film that we rejected. Wasn't bad. Th- that this is a kind of two nearly identical wacky twins or, you know, two crazy peas in a pod kind of a thing. <laughs> of Twin the, weirdos like, is what I kept calling them. Bob and Doug McKenzie. Strange Brew was one of my favorite films growing up. A lot of Saturday Night Live characters. This is what Stepbrothers, yeah. So it's surprising that there is what Micah was referring to as like sort of actual emotional development and just something in that relationship because I feel like in most buddy comedies, like buddy is a liked term, right? They're not friendship comedies. They're buddies. And so it's either like if they're cops, they've assigned to be together. In fact, probably one is a hothead and one is 
more serious. You know, there's friction there. 21 Jump Street. And they become, yeah, they become buddies over time. And that seems to be because unless men like Brian and I have connected at a really young age, <laughs> we, you know, we were friends in middle school, in high school, and that kind of friendship for either sex, I think you can, you can often just go back to after years of not talking to them and but like to become buddies, it's like you're put in this situation, usually the film. This is more of, even though it has that wacky kind of background, it is more of a, a friendship comedy, I guess. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay, so let's look at some of these tropes that come up. And yes, I made this list because it was hard to find a list. Number one, there was no list for female buddy comedy tropes because that's how few of them there are. So looking through and just thinking about what kind of tropes are for buddy comedies in general, and feel free to add your own. Yes, there is the odd couple. So there's usually some sort of opposites. Oftentimes they tend to be weirdos or outsiders, which I think we see in this. We also saw in Book Smart, which we should also talk about. They might be stuck in a rut of some sort. And that gives us a cause for some sort of adventure and crazy hijinks. Oftentimes there's like a lead and a sidekick. There's oftentimes a fight over a man, some sort of sexcapade, which I think that, that that happens in in male body comedies as well as some female ones as well. But then we have the theme of platonic love or heterosexual life partners, a fight between the two of them, and then something that has to happen to create a happy ending where friendship conquers all. All right, that's the summary of the movie we just saw. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't really fight over a man. There is a sexcapade. There are crazy hijinks. They are stuck in a rut. Yeah. And that's set up in the beginning, I think. Just like their world is rocked. Their safe little platonic world is rocked. And then they have to do that leads to the hijinks, the craziness. And I think one of the funniest moments in the beginning is is how they set up that rut. I won't give specifics away, but I will say evidently they should have been without a job for a long time, but nobody thought to tell them. Oh, I love that. I thought that was hilarious. Talk about being insignificant, you know? No one told them that the chain closed. (laughs) (laughs) They are truly both weirdos and outsiders. Mm -hmm. As someone who has lived for decades in Nebraska, and this is set in soft rock Nebraska, I believe, and they have these weird voices. I'm thinking to myself, wait, is this how they think Nebraskans talk? But then I realize it's only the two of them that talk this way. They have this goofball speaking style that nobody else in the town speaks that way. It's just our two main characters. So they are truly outsiders, even in their hometown. There's a quiet little sleepy town. And I love that that's also further illuminated in their talking club. They're outsiders in a group called the talking club with all these crazy (laughs) rules. This is literally a group of outsiders and they are outsiders within that group. So (laughs) I thought that was really funny to highlight how actually strange they are. But do they even know that they are? I don't feel like they do, right? They're like completely oblivious to the fact that they are different. Do you think? I think they either are oblivious to it or they are uninterested in changing it when it's told to them. Several times in the film, they're interrupted from their constant talking and they just kind of laugh it off or they just stop for a minute and listen to whatever whoever's trying to interrupt them. So I wonder if it's either that they really don't know or that they're just they just let it roll off their backs. Something like that. I, I agree know. with you, Micah. I think they fully own it. They do occasionally see the slipstream outside of them and get into it and get back out of it. But it's what kind of shines a fun light on how odd they are, because if they were odd all the time, 
we would never get this break from it, but we're pulled into and out of it. And other people are odd too in their world, especially some of the other main characters in, or I should say some of the main supporting characters also have their obliviousness or their oddball notions in a way that makes it so it's not just Barb and Star who are the goofy ones here. You're right. I was kind of surprised that this was as surrealist overall as it is, that it's not just usually when you have these clown kind of characters, especially a pair of them. This is what fascinated me about this. You know, there are plenty of like one-off Mr. Bean kind of outsiders, but once you have two of them or more of them, it's a society. Like there's something really wrong is going on here. But usually in a film, it's that weirdness pitted against the straight-laced world. And in here, no, the jokes just run throughout that they're, unless it's their imaginative drugged projections <laughs> talking to a, the talking crab and <laughs> things like that, then yes, it's just a silly setup. Even looking at the villain, the whole idea behind what the villain is going through is being an outsider and having some sort of revenge on that particular group of people who made them feel like an outsider. And then we have like a funny take on the himbo trope with Jamie Dornan, who's usually known for doing like very dark roles. I've actually never seen any of the Fifty Shades of Grey films, but The Fall, where he's playing a serial killer, or is it a serial serial rapist, or is it both? both. I can't remember. <laughs> it, it was both. it was both. Yeah, he's ter- He's absolutely terrifying in this. In The Fall, not in this. In this, he's terrifyingly funny. Good <laughs> um, save. What did you guys think? (laughs) How did y'all feel about Jamie Dornan and the supporting characters? I thought it was cool to see so plainly his main objective was to be in a committed relationship. I don't know if you could make it any clearer that for me, I was like, oh, are they consciously doing this to make it be a little bit of a gender reversal with the main goal of the man to be in a committed relationship? I thought that was kind of interesting. And every time he heard the word committed, you could literally see his ears prick up. So I thought, I know, I thought that was so interesting. And they chose that. I feel like they might have chosen that word in particular as his little ignition point. And I thought that was really cool, like, especially when pitted against the two friends and how this seemingly like sweet man that they both kind of fall in love with right away who actually wants to be in a committed relationship, still they both are able to refocus and be like, wait, I can't. If I'm going to have this, I have to have it the right way without lying to my friend. So I thought that was really cool to see him as a sort of prize for them. But also like that's his journey too. In an absurd world, the journey seemed to be pretty real somehow. I'm not certain, Micah, but I don't know if you want to say all that again with official relationship, because I think that was the word... Official. Sorry, not committed. Official. No, we should get it right. Official. He they wants to be an official couple. That's what it is. Official couple. Sorry about that. Which is so junior high or high school, right? Isn't it? Like official boyfriend, couple. girlfriend. We're boyfriend, girlfriend. It's pretty official. It's pretty official. It's Facebook official. Oh, my God. I mean, I guess I see it as like the secretary in the new Ghostbusters, which was one of the Helmsworths, Chris Helmsworth. Yeah, Chris. You know, it's just a long overdue infantilization of male eye candy to respond <laughs> to the century of doing that to women in movies. So it's subverting a trope with a sledgehammer, really. Yeah. <laughs> I did not initially, maybe I should see the movie again, but as sort of cute as the sidekick boy who opens the whole film and the introduction of this James Bond villain setup is, 
I kind of didn't want it in there with the Barb and Star thing. Like, I didn't feel like it was the perfect thing to play off Barb and Star, like that they need to have the super villain. In the end, they would just convince to be a nicer person and accept her as a friend. And like that resolution is in line with the rest of the thing. But just tonally, that whole thing sort of set me off, including that element. I would have rather it be more of a Mr. Bean sort of story of you know, as much as I like the other surrealistic elements of having the musical number and just all the people who work at the hotel and the apparently a Mexican soap star. I looked it up. The guy who walks out, he sort of looks like a buff Pee Wee Herman showing off his junk in a Speedo and his bare <laughs> chest <laughs> repeatedly to kind of make everybody flinch. Those things formed a sort of a coherent whole, even the wacky crab and the Trish and all that stuff as compared to this other element that was invading. I guess it was a plot device, but I I don't know. I just didn't think it was necessary. Well, what kind of conflict would you want, Mark? I think just having the thing that happened of them initially fighting over a man and just getting out of their ruts, getting their groove back. (laughs) Their shimmers. (laughs) shimmers. I think changing it from high stakes to low stakes would change 20% of the movie and the other 80% would happen the exact same way. The high stakes forced them to and I really can't spoil the movie, but there were some jokes that were enabled from the fact that they were having to do certain things that I think worked and some that worked really well. I like things that are weird. And that's, I'd say, one not of the you. main reasons. What? <laughs> not you. You don't like weird things. <laughs> I think that's one of the main reasons I really liked this. It was funny, but I liked how freaking weird it was. And I, we were watching it on Valentine's Day and Drew and I just kept looking at each other like, what is happening? This is amazing. And oftentimes women don't really get to just show how weird they are. Or maybe it's not that they don't get to. I'm not really sure that that's it. But I do know with myself in particular, I gravitate more toward weird things, especially as I get older and I'm more like fascinated by those things. Because for so long, women have been stuck in films where they are one of like three different archetypes. For them to be able to go in as writers and stars of this and just make it as weird as they wanted to, we are seeing something that's very different for women. And I think because of that, this movie will stand out throughout time as a very different type of buddy comedy. I'm not sure if it'll age great or age poorly, but I think it will stand out. Well, it is rare that any film can pull off SNL-like characters and actually make them deserve to be in a movie. (laughs) So many of these things just night at the Roxbury or something like just no it was good for a three minute sketch you don't need these characters I don't know if I would go so far I guess I want to throw it out what do you think like if somebody tried to do this as a tv show with these characters you know if they could these writers these actors doing these parts is that something that you would enjoy or that you feel like they could get enough mileage out of I don't know. I think in the beginning, I mentioned that I was kind of still mulling over the movie. And I think what I latched on to, like I said, most was that their relationship was really solid. But at the same time, kind of like Night in the Roxbury, it's a movie that I really enjoy, but I don't go to it all the time. I don't know if I could watch a full series with these characters, especially since the surrealism and the absurdity it's just so much. Like sometimes I kept finding myself just shaking my head, being like, "Are you? what is happening right now? And that's me. Like I like you, Erica. I also like very funny, weird things. But even so, for a full movie, I was like, wow, this is good. 
This is a good wrap up to the story, even though it's kind of crazy. And yeah, some of the absurd things, they were a little much for me, I think, which is funny because I usually love it. Like I'm a huge Anchorman person. I love movies like that. And I thought Bridesmaids was great. I just think that a series might be too much of these characters, for me at least. I don't know if I could just continually go back to them. I would agree with that. I think this is more of a series I'd like to continue as a film series, as a Beverly Hills Cop type of... We need one every few years. They can have different types of hijinks. You would watch them on SNL and some weeks would be great and some weeks would be terrible. And so I'd rather them just take the best of it and put it into a movie. I don't think that absurdist comedy has really... I I could be totally not thinking of something obvious, but I feel like the examples I've seen on TV seem not to work or maybe they just don't have traction. And I'm thinking of Angie Tribeca and I'm thinking of that new Steve Carell space force or whatever that was called. And, And part of that is having that stasis that you have to return to at the end of every episode is it's usually some kind of normality. And it's kind of a hard thing to stretch and then come back to episode after episode. And then the other thing I'd say to you, Mark, about the difficulty in these is I think there are SNL characters, as we've pointed out, you need to have extreme comedic chops and really good writing and execution to make this work. And even this movie could have easily failed with just the wrong people in it. I, I think Kristen Wiig is one of the best in the business. And I think there are there's a lot of this that would have been just unwatchable had it not been done perfectly. I think as far as TV, the Sarah Silverman program I'm looking up kind of is the closest to. Yeah. I mean, it was her and her sister being a prominent character, but it was still she was the primary like clown character that was then traveling through this world with things reacting to her so but that in terms of a sustainable level of that surrealist absurdity that seems like that would probably match it pretty well well even you know 30 rock has a lot of weird absurdist comedy but it's still all in the realm of a 30 minute episodic comedy right so i don't know in my opinion i just i I think the film format for this is right where it belongs one thing i wanted to bring up because i found this to be fascinating and i just didn't know Obviously, we know that in general, females are underrepresented in film. But what I didn't know was even though they are underrepresented, the way that they perform at the box office is much higher than what you might think. So this was from evocative.com. It says, of 70 buddy comedies released in the U.S. from 2009, revealed that a hugely disproportionate amount centered around male leads, about four men's buddy comedies for every one starring a woman. This despite the fact that on average, buddy comedies about women actually do oh so slightly better than the ones featuring men's stories in terms of both critical acclaim and box office success. And there was another study within this article that of the top grossing films from 2006 to 2015, movies about women earned about 45.5 million more than movies about men. See, the public knows what it wants. Allow me to mansplain the statistics here. Yeah, please. <laughs> I would just think if there are very, if there are many fewer female ones approved, probably those are going to be better on the whole. I agree with you on that. Yeah. So if you had just, if we actually had parity in numbers, I am sure that the box office and the critical thing would be just as dismal as for, for male buddy comedies because <laughs> it is a trash heap. It is not a good. Like I said, I watched Sisters in, I would expect it something better out of those two brilliant showrunner actors. Yeah, I feel like Baby Mama definitely was a better representation of the two of them. Even though that wasn't like amazing, I still liked it better. Did you see those, Micah? 
I didn't see those, but one that I did want to bring up, and I, I know you mentioned it a little bit before, Mark, is Booksmart, which to me, if you had to pick one movie to show someone who has never seen a female buddy comedy, I would pick that movie because that movie I just, I thought had just the right amount of absurdity and even more of a solid take and a very clear look at a friendship between a real friendship between two women. I thought that movie was just wonderful. And the two actresses, I would really watch them in absolutely anything. I think they're so talented and great. So that movie, that was a good one. Yeah, those two are great in everything they do. I first saw Beanie Feldstein on Broadway. I went to the opening night of Hello, Dolly! And she walks on stage and gets this huge amount of applause. And I was like, who is that? And some, my friend leans over to me and she's like, that's Jonah Hill's sister. And I'm like, oh, am I supposed to know her? I think she was already on um, What We Do in the Shadows probably at that time. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that was right after. But yeah, she's she's great. And uh, Caitlin Deaver has comedic and dramatic chops. Such range. She's wonderful. Right, we talked about Unbelievable. And that was all I had mm-hmm. really seen her in. And I felt uncomfortable laughing at anything she was doing because she had been so victimized in that one. That was the first thing I saw her in as well. So it, it was such a nice relief to see her do something so joyful as Booksmart. You know, one of our friends that we had on one of our earlier episodes, my friend Ian, he's good friends with the girl who wrote Booksmart, is also working with Olivia Wilde on her newest film as well. Yeah. Yeah, she's had some great success. And it's cool to see like also Olivia Wilde getting in there and committing to creating like really interesting stories about female leads. And I think that's the ticket, right? Is somebody the other day posted on Facebook about, it was about like females leading a series or something like that. And another female said, what we don't realize is that when we put a female at the center of something, oftentimes people think, oh, well, I've got my quota because this is a female-centered story. And they don't realize that all the characters around them are male. So there's still a huge inequity, even putting somebody at the center of it. And this is not just about females. This is about any kind of underrepresentation. You stick them in the middle of a story, but you have to look at all the people surrounding them because not only from a jobs aspect, but it does help define the relationship of those people in the center to the other people around them. And you can show so much more variance in a character, in all sorts of characters, if you have more representation overall. I'm going to go behind the curtain a little bit on how we put our shows together because I have a question for Erica and I think I'm losing my mind or at some point on our notes page or maybe it was in an email you had talked about whether various movies had passed the Bechdel test. Was that just in an email or did you erase that from our notes or am I losing my mind? I erased it from here because they pretty much all passed the Bechdel test. Could you explain what that is? I can unless you want to. I think you've explained it on here before. I just want to make sure I'm getting it all right. So let me look it up. I want you to explain it because I want to express my beef with it. Okay. Not my beef, but I feel like I am worn out from it. You're worn out from it? That sounds like a real roast beef, Brian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, then fine, I'll say it. So it was a cartoonist, Alison Bechtel, who came up with this test for a, a movie to see if it met some minimum criteria for representation for women and the three things that a movie would need in order to pass or any piece of creative fiction is a movie has to have at least two women in it they have to talk to each other and they have to talk to each other about something other than a man and the the most common variant i've seen is that the movie has to have two women who have names character names speaking roles yeah speaking roles they talk about something other than a man and i think the fact that all these pasts that we've been talking about 
And yet there is still something profoundly unsatisfying about some of them to me is that this test is a very, very low bar. And it's so low, in fact, that (laughs) I think it's time we need to at least redefine it a little bit. And it's that third part of it, which is where they talk about something other than a man. And this is to borrow totally from 30 Rock, is that they have to talk about something other than having it all. Or writ large, it's the female experience. Because, you know, I feel like these male buddy comedies can be about anything but so often when it's a female comedy it's like well it still could only be done with females because they're and the one i'm going to refer to here is wine country right and it's boy i wish i could unwatch that but i can't and it's a little (laughs) bit more of an ensemble piece but there are some bigger character than others yeah i agree with you a hundred percent because now we are starting to see like the wheels sort of turn and and people realize especially with movies like bridesmaids and book smart and this now um barb and star we're starting to see that people really enjoy this and people want to see these movies. So maybe this could be that sort of kick in the pants to the Bechdel test to get it more criteria. We need to be better than that. I agree with you. I have that same beef and I didn't know it. So thanks. <laughs> All right. But I, I, I want to push back at Brian a little that I think if you're trying to say that I want them to not just be talking about the woman experience. Like if you put that bar onto all sorts of representation, then like, all these civil rights movies, for instance, which are talking about the black experience in a direct way, wouldn't count anymore as representation because you want them to not be just talking about being whatever group that they're from. This demand that you're making seems like it's a demand that somebody from one of those groups might not want to accept. I would like some to not be that. You're right. You're absolutely right. Sometimes it's about it and sometimes it could be about something else like, say, busting ghosts so you know busting ooh. makes me feel good i mean <laughs> <laughs> that is the uh, that's, that's fair enough song. that's a perfectly <laughs> perfectly reasonable and and when that's what the movie is genuinely about and when it does it well that's great my worry is that there are these movies that aren't getting made because they're not about that yes and so if that is and again that's really speaks to what the bechdel test was supposed to be which was an absurdly low bar, but it's so low now and everything's getting over it that let's raise the low bar and have a new low one to try to get over (laughs) at least some of the time. I love that new low bar. And I do think also just to be clear, like I can't speak for all women, but I'll speak for myself in saying that if it doesn't pass the Bechdel test, it doesn't mean I won't like that film. If women are in the movie and they're subjected to a very silly, tropey role, it doesn't mean that that may not be one of my favorite movies as well. And that's really not the point. The point is that those aren't all of the opportunities that are available. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't be able to make historically accurate films that talk about things that are very important that need to be talked about, but that's not all that we would see. And This is a very random thing to throw in here, but it just made me think about like Bridgerton is kind of a fantasized world, right? Where we have a monarch who is a black woman. And because of this, we now have all these black characters who are also dukes and duchesses. And is that something that actually happened? Not that I'm aware of in England. I don't think that happened ever. And maybe it happened in a smaller, <laughs> in a, you know, a smaller area. But that doesn't matter because the story behind it is so much more important. And it's not about that. That's just one element of a much bigger story. So yeah, I think we can, there's room to have both kinds of historically accurate and something that's more fantasized and still absolutely believable and, you know, at the core of it, just a good story. There's just different standards one could impose for what counts as talking about 
your identity. And one of those for, in the case of female friendship media, as if that were the name of a thing, might be there's a lot more talking about the relationship. And that's what makes it a friendship movie in part rather than a buddy comedy. Because as I've defined buddy comedies early on, it's just like there are cops, they're on the beat, they're dealing with the thing. And so you can have movies like The Heat, which I guess are primarily about that, where they're doing their the role that they've been put in. But these more interesting ones, like including parts of Barb and Star, quite a bit of Barb and Star, is reflecting on the importance of their relationship, which really is saying their importance of their relationship as women. Like I've never, at least I can't think of a movie where there's two men, two hetero men that are sort of concerned about their relationship in a way that they have to talk about it and that that's a significant plot point. Are your characters stoned while they're having this discussion? <laughs> because I'm thinking mm-hmm. of the scene in Superbad oh. where the two characters who are have gotten pretty stoned and are like finally admitting that they can tell each other that they love each other, even though they're men and heterosexual, fairly young. And then, of course, they wake up and they have to shake it all off. What were you going to say? I was thinking of I love you, man. That's a great example of something that is recognizing the poverty of the default male friendships that we're involved in an activity. Again, when you meet somebody, you have these common experiences that go back to your childhood that sort of grandfathers in something. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I've had the experience of like being in college in a band with somebody doing all the stuff in, in fact, being his roommate and then having him kind of have some doubt when it's over, like, we are actually friends, right? We weren't just like doing this thing together. Oh my God. (laughs) That's, you know, some of these other like being on a podcast with people. It seems like these are my best friends that I've been talking with for 10 years. If we stopped doing the podcast, would we talk that much anymore? Mm -hmm. We don't even know. So it's pretty transgressive (laughs) for a movie like I Love You Man to be actually exploring that pathology. Micah and I have pretty good examples of this actually at home. Micah, do you want to talk about our husband's relationship? Oh my gosh. Yeah, sure. Uh, Just briefly, we met because our husbands were going to grad school together for music composition and they kind of became quick friends and it was funny because at the time they were like oh what is your like i'm taking my girlfriend to do this and oh what does your girlfriend do she's an actor wait my girlfriend's an actor and then it just kind of was like a very clear thing it was an easy friendship if i'm speaking for them Mm -hmm. to kind of fall into they have similar philosophies they're really they should just talk about anything and we always used to laugh because Eric and I would be walking together talking about, you know, whatever. And we would just hear little snippets of their conversation being about postmodernism <laughs> and just like the most random, deep things. And we're like, oh, yeah, postmodernism, right, Erica? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was one of the things we kept going back to is we would just have like common <laughs> conversations and they would be like in it. And at one point, I don't remember, if- like four feet away from us. <laughs> yeah. And I think they even started writing each other handwritten letters at one point. They did. It was beautiful. Yeah. Cause they had seen that that, w- that happened with some of the composers. Like, oh, these composers wrote each other letters. We should do that. Yeah. It's such a cool relationship. And you guys live in New York and we were living in Boston for a while. Now we've moved to Connecticut and we get to see you guys more often, barring current, the current situation with the pandemic. But I feel like ours, Erica and I, is the relationship where we can kind of do what you were talking about earlier, which is just pick up right where we left off. And theirs is 100% that too. And I know that they text each other pretty much daily. It's really sweet about everything. It is really sweet. And part of the reason, you know, I want to bring it up too, is that it is that kind of male friendship that they've found that unique other person who's okay with expressing their love for the other one. And yeah, 
that and it's not weird. No, it's not weird. It's funny. I mean, it's not fun. It's not funny. I shouldn't make fun of them. And yet I find myself teasing them anyway. But I, I do love it. And you're right. That is, I don't know. I saw Brian smile and I was like, <laughs> I shouldn't tease any of you males because you you do like men need that buddy. They do. I think we should see more of that. I would like to see more of that in film. Absolutely. I would like to see more emotionally charged relationships between two heterosexual men because that is a thing that exists in this world and how interesting would it be to see a film about that how interesting would it be to see a a buddy film about that where like you said mark they're not put together to do a job or they're not like assigned together they're like these friends they're just there aren't that many of those and i think when we see female buddy comedies we do see more of that these people were friends from the beginning and these two women were each other's rocks and they're outsiders, but they're outsiders together. So it would be interesting to see more male-led comedies where that is the case rather than a position or like an assignment. Yeah, and I think that for me, at least, the female buddy comedies that work better are the ones that are based around this kind of friendship rather than two people who are pitted against each other who eventually become friends. That, I, it, it, to me, is a very played out storyline. Yeah, it's predictable. You can see where it's going and it's not as interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like the oldest buddy comedies, there were just no explanation for why these people are together. In the <laughs> Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis or Laurel and Hardy, it's just like, this is the comic premise, is that these people hang out together and have a funny dynamic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do the three stooges live together and sleep in in a triple bunk bed? <laughs> Who knows? Me and Bert share a bedroom and it's just how it is. That's just what it is. <laughs> and we do find out like now we can look back with a very different lens and be like, that was probably a gay relationship. But like that they didn't. They couldn't say that then, you know, about various. I'm not saying Bert and Ernie, but who knows? It's OK. Rile up the right. Just right? insist on it. <laughs> but no, there there are so many songs throughout the ages, too. Like they were written to more or less be like, I have this deep longing inside of me. And it's because I can't really express my true love. And that's also, I think they did try to express it the best they could at the time. But now it's even more important for us to express these various degrees of the human condition, human relationships for everybody, because we aren't really comfortable. And this is where the idea of art and film and pop culture become very important. When we see it, it becomes normalized and it becomes okay for everybody to act like that now. And I think it's a continuum and you normalize one thing and you open the door to normalize sort of the next thing that still might have a stigma attached to it. So we'll see. I want to normalize seagull serenades. (laughs) Serenading the seagull. <laughs> Explain the, <laughs> the reference. Seagull on the tire, can you hear my prayer? That's as much as I'm going to give. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, you guys have to watch the movie to watch the movie. Watch it. Well, thanks, Micah. This added an extra dimension. Having two sets of friends, having some, some female buds on with us. So. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks. <laughs> it was really fun. It was great to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, listeners. Thanks. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.